0: Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, Scarcely a year goes by on this Sunday that I don't take time to just look at this life that has impacted our world, uh, this life that was impacted by the life of Christ, um, this life that continues to impact, specifically, this church. Martin Luther King Jr. Day was established, uh, some of you remember, in 1986. It was a federal holiday. It was established to be observed on the third Monday of January each year, which coincided with King's birthday, January 15th, today. Today, he would have been 88 years old. 1968, following his assassination, which I think I was seven days old when King was murdered, Representative John Conyers, almost immediately after, introduced a bill to Congress, and the bill was to make King's birthday Uh, a national holiday. Conyers highlighted, interestingly, King's activism on behalf of trade unions. For the next decade, it was unions, interestingly, all through the 70s, unions who did the most work on behalf of the holiday. Uh, They did the majority of the campaigning. A Democrat from Georgia, Jimmy Carter, was elected president in 76. Remember those high interest rates? And he helped. In this process, he came alongside the unions. He endorsed the King Day bill. During during his tenure, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, got on the wagon and uh, the corporate community got involved. The civil rights community even began to get louder on the matter as they campaigned for this holiday. In 1980, Uh, You remember Stevie Wonder released a commemorative single. Remember that? Happy Birthday. Remember that song? Subsequently, he held a rally. He hosted a rally called the Rally for Peace press conference in 1981. And in the aftermath of that song and that press conference, there were six million signatures collected for a petition to Congress to pass the bill. Largest in history the drive continued to gain momentum remember it started in 68 so now we're in the 80s and there still is this push Uh, there was opposition all along the opposition mainly was, was led by senator jesse helms helms was critical of king's opposition to the vietnam war and helms continually purported that king had ties to the communist party at times he openly questioned whether mlk was an important enough figure quote, to receive such an honor. Uh, quietly, President Ronald Reagan also was opposed to the holiday for specific reasons that he did enumerate. He finally relented uh, after Congress passed the King Day Bill. Uh, Congress passed it 338 to 90 in the House and 7822 in the Senate. And so in 1983 in the White House Rose Garden, November 2nd, 1983, uh, it became law. It was observed the first time two years later, January 20th, 1986. Now with that said, that was the year I graduated high school and I remember uh, the Ballyhooed event. It was actually 14 years, 14 years in 2000 before all 50 states recognized this holiday. For 14 years, some states protested, Uh, Greenville, County, South Carolina, has the ignoble distinction of being the last county in the U.S. to finally relent and observe the holiday, and they did so just 11 years ago in 2006. Some states like Utah and Arizona, New Hampshire, maybe there are others, call it Human Rights Day. Many refer to it as Civil Rights Day. It's actually only the fourth federal holiday established to honor an individual. Who are the other three? George Washington, Christopher Columbus. Come on, Christians. Jesus. Boy, y'all are asleep. It's called Christmas. So the question before us, and I think every year we should circle back around to, is who was this man? What did this man do to merit such an honor? And what have we learned and what can we continue to learn from his short life of less than four decades? He was born Michael Luther King, January 15, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia. He was the son and grandson of Baptist ministers. Michael Luther's name was changed to Martin Luther along with his father's in 1935 when he was only six years old, his father and Martin had their names changed, legally changed in honor of the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther. He was by all accounts a precocious child and youth. He graduated from the renowned Morehouse College which was his father's and grandfather's alma mater in 1948 at the age of 19. He then matriculated to Crozer Theological Seminary, and he received a B.D. in 1951, committed himself to academic life, went on to Boston University, studied systematic theology under some brilliant theologians, and was hooded with his Ph.D. in 1955. While he was in Boston, he met a young lady by the name of Coretta Scott. She would later become his wife, with whom he would have four children. He was ordained in 1947 at the age of 18 at his father and grandfather's church, Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta. 1954, he assumed his first pastorate, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Fate struck a fate that has changed not only his life, his family's life, but the world. After assuming the pastorate there at the age of 25 years old, two years later, December 1st, 1955, A seamstress by the name of rosa parks refused to comply with the jim crow law she refused to give up her seat on a montgomery bus she had encountered this driver blake james once james once before in 1943. she was literally forced on that day to walk down the stairs of the bus where she had put her money in a driving pouring rain and as was the custom walk to the back of the bus and enter through the back she refused to because of the rain and it was quite a deal but in 1954 on this particular day her subsequent arrest grew into a shot a proverbial shot that was heard around the world the black community at that moment formed a new organization to lead a bus boycott Uh, philip yancey says that the fledgling movement quote by default chose as a compromise candidate for its leadership the new minister in town The 26-year-old king who looked more like a teen than a man. Martin Luther accepted the appointment in spite of the fact that earlier that same year in March, a 15-year-old girl named Claudette Colvin had suffered the same fate on the bus and he had refused to get involved. He refused to get involved saying that he needed to focus his attention on the church. The 382-day boycott resulted in a Supreme Court decision outlawing racial segregation of all public transport. Immediately after the boycott was effective, King was announced uh, as the de facto leader of the new organization, given a new title. It had been kind of de, uh, de, de facto, but now it was de jure. It was, it was voted on, and he became the, not only the boycott's leader, but the organization's leader. He was, almost immediately after accepting the position, arrested and jailed in his hometown for allegedly driving 30 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone. The next evening, this 26-year-old young preacher, pastor, not begrudging but resistantly, this movement's leader, sat at his kitchen table staring at a cup of coffee wondering to himself, quote, if I can do this. As he was sitting there at the kitchen table scared to death. He said the phone rang and a voice on the other end of the line Voice on the other end of the line said we are tired of you We are tired of your mess now And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're gonna blow your brains out and blow up your house Deeply shaken he hung up the phone And by his testimony, he began to try to figure a way out, a way out of this life, a way out of a life that he did not feel he had the strength for. In the next room lay sleeping Coretta and their newborn daughter. Here's how he described that night in a sermon given a few years later. I sat at the table thinking about that little girl I sat there thinking about a bomb And I sat there thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep And I got to the point that I couldn't take it anymore I was weak And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me I knew that I had to know God for myself And I bowed down over that cup of coffee and I will never forget it. I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night I said Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak. I'm faltering and I'm losing my courage And it seemed at that moment that I can hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther Stand up for righteousness Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And I will be with you even until the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying to me, fight on. And on that night, he promised never to leave me. Never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Uh, As promised, three nights later, a bomb exploded on their front porch, a substantial bomb, in spite of significant damage. Fortunately, no one in the house was hurt. King said, in the aftermath of the bomb, I was filled with a supernatural serenity. And he said, quote, my experience a few nights before over that cup of coffee had given me the strength to face it. And for the rest of his 13 years on earth, this promise of God's continuing abiding presence would buoy and sustain him and off he would speak of that night. 1957, he was elected president of another organization, a newly formed but quickly formidable Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. His role in the civil rights struggle escalated rapidly. His powerful gifts of mental thought, leadership. Rhetoric and speech began to forge a space for him. In 1959, at the age of 29, he joined his father as co-pastor of Ebenezer. In the ensuing years, he devoted himself to organizing historical marches. St. Augustine, Selma, Chicago, Birmingham. He was repeatedly arrested. He was repeatedly jailed. He suffered severe beatings more than a dozen times. Some say his finest hour came on August 28, 1963, when he led over a quarter of a million people in the great march on Washington, DC. The march culminated in his legendary speech, I Have a Dream, given at the Lincoln Memorial. Joining Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, this is heralded and commonly recognized as one of the two greatest speeches in US history. King was 33 years old. The next year, the global community awarded him its highest honor, the Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 34. To date, at that point, he was the youngest person ever so honored. 1966, King, in a very radical move, moved his family into a Chicago slum to demonstrate their support and concern for the impoverished city dwellers there and everywhere. His co-laborer, Ralph Abernathy, later wrote that they received a worse reception in this northern city than they had received anywhere in the south. Uh, Tommy, Billy, and I used to talk about that. You guys were in the middle of that fray in Chicago at that time. The violence and the wrath was so menacing, it literally shook these leaders to their core and caused them to question the efficacy, the effectualness of their work. All of his biographers recount the encounter between King, his compatriots, and the Chicago mayor, the corrupt mayor, Richard Daly. King's workers were feeling deeply betrayed by Daly, who had promised them a continued right to march as well as police protection for their marches. And in the meantime, after promising them that, Daly had gone back on his promise, secretly obtained a court order to ban future marches. At this Waterloo meeting between Daly and King, historians say King sat silently through a long period of acrimony and rancor. And just as the meeting was about to break apart with bitterness and futility, King spoke up with a calm intensity. And this is what he said. Let me say, gentlemen, that if you are tired of demonstrations, we are tired of demonstrating. We are tired of the threat of death I am tired of the threat of death I want to live I don't want to be a martyr and there are moments when I doubt if I'm going to make it through you're tired of our protest well please know I am tired of getting hit I'm tired of being beaten I'm tired of going to jail but the important thing is not how tired I am the important thing is to get rid of the conditions that lead us to march Now, gentlemen, you know, we don't have much. We don't have much money. We don't really have much education. We sure don't have political power. All we have to our name is our bodies. We have our feet. And you are asking us to give up the one thing that we have when you say don't march. Historians say that King's speech and his calm changed the mood of the meeting. Mayor Daley's heart was effectively touched and a new agreement was made. On these words, the New Deal was reached, the marches continued, and King later looked back and realized that moment was one of the three most pivotal moments in the entire process of his civil rights work. We have only our bodies. The simple phrase rose from the deepest core of King's heart, the deepest core of his spiritual philosophy. We have only our bodies. It was rooted in his understanding as a Christian of the idea of incarnation. The idea, the power of God in flesh. We have only our bodies. You see, the year he had entered seminary in 1948, Mahatma Gandhi... Was assassinated on his way to a prayer meeting in New Delhi. Deeply touched and moved, King began to study the life of this Hindu man, a man whose own life was impacted by one named Jesus. Eleven years later, after the assassination, King and Coretta finally were able to venture to India to observe in person the effect of nonviolent resistance. This form of resistance that was championed by Gandhi, a form of resistance that led India to independence. King later said of his hero, Gandhi was the first person in history to live the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals. Amazing. Causes all of us to sit back and consider again, what is the definition of Christian? Those who believe certain creeds are those who live the life of one named Christ. In his book, Strive Toward Freedom, King said that he left India, in his words, more convinced than ever before that nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom. Later he went even further saying, this form of violence or nonviolence allows one who is broken to break an unjust law in an open, honorable, and loving way with a sincere willingness to accept the penalty. And it was through the acceptance of the penalty, King said, that perhaps we will even be able to offer the world the greatest thing, and that is the redemption. This again hearkened back to his idea that Christ's punishment was the cross And yet for 2,000 years, Christians have noted that it was that very form of punishment and suffering by which Christ redeemed those who caused his suffering. We will bear in our bodies the blows of your hatred, metabolizing them with love and sending them back to you as redemption. King said, when I went to Montgomery as a pastor, I had not the slightest idea that I would later become involved in a crisis in which nonviolent resistance would be applicable. I neither started the protest nor suggested it. I simply responded to the call of the people for a spokesman. When the protest began, my mind consciously or unconsciously was driven back to the Sermon on the Mount with its sublime teachings on love and to the Gandhian method of nonviolent resistance. He was stabbed in New York by a woman. The knife lodged a fraction of an inch from his aorta In Birmingham he was accosted by a man While King stood on the platform of a demonstration As King's supporters surrounded the man taking hold of him King cried out beneath the blows from the man's fist Do not harm him! Remembering One named Jesus Who reached to the ground picking up an ear putting it back on the head of the very man who had come to arrest him. Remembering Jesus saying to Peter, put up your sword. If we live by this, we will die by this. Harkening back to the words of the Apostle Paul, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed them for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on their head, which is not salt in their wound. It was a Jewish form of penance. You will bring their heart to the threshold of its greatest opportunity for change. Do not harm him. Pray for him. He said, he never called these people his enemies. He only called them his ill white brothers and sisters. In that same time, we are aware that many, many African-Americans broke beneath the weight of night sticks. Many blacks broke beneath the weight of attack dogs, water cannons, cattle prods, bombs, torture, and the murders of their friends and family. And those who broke can scarcely be blamed. They drifted toward the rhetoric of black power, armed revolt, derisively calling King, Uncle Tom, and DeLaud. In the last years of his life, King knew that there was a threat to his life, not only from his ill white brothers and sisters, but from his angry black brothers and sisters. He was called Uncle Tom, he was called DeLaud, and yet wherever violent riots broke out, King, welcome or unwelcome, always continued to appear. And he was always calling for peace, desperately, in his words, to keep the abused from becoming abusers. To keeping the abused from being overcome by evil and stooping to the tactics of oppression. He consistently, doggedly interjected into his speeches the message that Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, he said, one must take up the cross with all its difficulties and agonizing, tension-packed content. To be a Christian, one must carry that tension-packed cross until that very cross leaves its mark upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way which only, he said, comes through suffering. It is often noted that King strategically, brilliantly sought out individuals like Sheriff Bull Connor in Selma. He staged scenes of confrontation with people like Connor, because he believed the only thing that would cut through the calluses of a nation's, a nation's seared soul was for that nation to witness firsthand the brutalities and agony of marches like Selma and other places. He later reflected that one of the most difficult things that he ever did was to call his friends and families and to tell them to please bring their children as well. Knowing that as the CBS camera rolled, as people in safe, sterile living rooms across this nation had to witness the tumbling bodies of youth and children at the end of water cannons, CBS film that day made us watch young juvenile girls with German Shepherds clinging to their arm he said it was the most difficult decision of his life and yet he knew it would be the only effective thing he wanted us to be forced to see silent demonstrators mercilessly clubbed and attacked by trained dogs he wanted us to see he wanted us to see a group of people as the body of Christ Doing exactly what Paul said we do in Colossians 2 If we are the body of Christ And that is filling up in our bodies The suffering of Jesus which was incomplete <laughs> Wow i take a full day to unpack that statement Roy, filling up in our bodies The suffering of Jesus which was incomplete Even for King this approach was not without its struggles. In letters from Birmingham, a Birmingham jail, one of the most moving anthologies of his thoughts, uh, a, a, an anthology that was smuggled out on toilet paper and the margins of newspapers by his friends. In letters from a Birmingham jail, King recounted in compelling detail his own desperate struggle to forgive, his own desperate struggle to not be overcome by bitterness. His desperate struggle to stay the nearly impossible course first established by his Lord, the one who was led as a lamb to the slaughter. In an address to some restless students who were beginning to crumble under the load, King said this to them. King looked out at them with full heart, tears in his eyes, they say, and said, There is something in this student movement which says to us that we shall overcome. But you are tired but I must tell you before the victory is won some are going to get scarred up but we shall overcome before the victory of brotherhood is achieved some will maybe face physical death but we shall overcome before the victory is won some will lose jobs some will be called communists and reds merely because they believe in brotherhood some will be dismissed as dangerous rabble-rousers and agitators merely because they're standing up for what is right But we shall overcome that is the basis of this movement, and I like to say there is something in this universe that justifies the poet Carlyle in saying that no lie can live forever. We shall overcome because there is something in this universe which justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying truth crushed to earth shall rise again. We shall overcome because there is something in this universe that justifies James Russell Lowell in saying truth forever on the scaffold... Wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow keeping watch, keeping watch above his own. His words were personally prophetic because in early spring of 1968, King went to Memphis to lend his support to the city's black sanitation workers. They were not being paid when weather was bad and they were being sent home unfairly. In a gathering on the evening of April 3rd, I had been born, March 27th, King gave his I've been to the mountaintop speech. In it, he rallied his beleaguered followers saying, it really doesn't matter what happens now. Some began to talk about the threats that were out, what would happen to me by some of my sick white brothers. I want you to know today, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will and He's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord The next day, still in Memphis, on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. (laughs) I I was there just a few months ago. He was fatally shot. Five days later, by Coretta, four children, and two grieving parents, he was laid to rest. President Johnson declared the day a day of national mourning. A crowd of 300,000 people attended his funeral. He is one of the ten... 20th century martyrs from around the world who are depicted in statues above the great west door of Westminster Abbey in London. Posthumously, he has been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Congressional Gold Medal. Time Magazine's Person of the Century poll ranked him sixth. A 2005 joint study by the Discovery Channel and AOL at the time voted him the third greatest American. A recent Gallup poll named him the second most admired person in the 20th century. But as I bring my thoughts to a close today, I would be remiss if I didn't say he was not a perfect man. Since his death, revelations of his human frailty have have been observed, objective historical inquiry uh, has been led and spotlighted by his detractors. Many of his detractors spotlight his frailties in an effort to undermine not only the credibility of his life and work, but even more his cause, a cause that we are all still a part of today. King worked during the height of the Cold War when communism ranked as as our greatest enemy. As the nation became fearful and punchy, it fell into the Red Scare and McCarthyism. Many of you remember those days. Consequently, King became suspect to the powers that be I believe history has proven him to be no communist, though he admittedly tired of the inequities and the abuses he saw his people suffering under democratic capitalism, where they had once legally and now tacitly been purchasable commodities. He had a famously mutually antagonistic relationship with the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, whose private life, I might say, had plenty of interesting details as well. With the consent of Attorney General Robert Kennedy, wiretaps were placed on King and his associates for several years. Suffice to say, the tapes did not prove King to be a communist. If anything, the opposite was revealed. He was a true patriot. Sadly though, the tapes and constant surveillance did reveal that accusations of King's sexual impropriety were not altogether unfounded. After his death, many continued to defend him against these so-called rumors but due to the Freedom of Information Act the transcripts of many of the tapes from the hotel rooms in which he stayed conclusively revealed things that were beneath his dignity those closest to him now do not argue the point and one whom he followed said whoever is without sin may pick up the stone if they would like King's attorney and close friend, Clarence B. Jones, said much of what was recorded, though he understood, sounded horrible. He said it was only midnight talk of just two close friends joking around about women, but there was no excuse. King was also accused of plagiarism. It's well documented that he often lifted long sections from the other sources for use in his writings and speeches without ascribing credit. Concerns about his doctoral dissertation at BU led to a formal inquiry by university officials. The upshot of the investigation was that a full third of his thesis had been plagiarized from a paper written by an earlier graduate student. His degree though was not revoked because the committee said it still made intelligent intelligent contribution to scholarship. King scholar Claiborne Carson called this textual appropriation and said the habit was pervasive throughout King's entire academic and vocational career. Keith Miller argues that the practice falls within the tradition of African-American folk preaching, which I would say I totally understand and have often failed to appropriate from a tradition of Pentecostal preaching that I grew up in. It It should not be then viewed so harshly, Miller argues. However, as Theodore Pappas later pointed out, King, in fact, took an entire class on scholarly standards and plagiarism during his graduate work at BU. He knew better. All of these disclosures notwithstanding, all of these disclosures, interestingly, and I believe fortunately, have in no way, for me and many others, have not fatally damaged his memory nor his cause. In fact they have, in a profound way, underscored the reality that he was not simply a hero, he was a human hero. A flawed, frail, human, like all the rest, but a hero. One of the sad defense mechanisms utilized by our lesser self, and I say this in the wake of an election that has troubled many, One of the sad defense mechanisms utilized by our lower self our shadow side is our tendency to elevate our heroes and our saints to mythological supernatural heights the result is once they are there we become relieved of any serious responsibility to imitate them we are left only with a simpler duty to praise and honor them it is much easier to venerate people like jesus And King than it is to imitate them down deep we all know that superficial veneration is much easier than committed imitation as Philip Yancey so well stated King's moral weakness provides a convenient excuse for anyone who wants to avoid his message ironically people perpetrating what I believe is one of life's most egregious sins racism I grew up in the thick of it My little town in Northeast Arkansas, I spent the first 18 years of my life in that town of 15 to 20,000 people. Only one person of color lived there that entire time. It was a foster child that we affectionately called Sugar Ray. Finally, Monroe Shock Absorbers Company sent an executive in to be president of the plant there in town. He was found hung in his garage six months into his time in Paragould, this person of color, it was uh, reported, the death was reported as suicide. Ironically, the people that I grew up with who were steeped in severe and still are steeped in severe racism are often the ones who are the quickest to point out his flaws while blatantly unwilling to see the two before in their own. I wanna say this about King and about many others. What jeopardy we are in, in this world, if the flaws of the messenger invalidate the message. His flaws were unfortunate, but they were not undermining. And I will say this in defense of him. Periodically, for reasons beyond us, Humility, mercy, wisdom, a mantle of truth, grace, and power. Periodically in our lives, that kind of force descends in momentous proportions on an individual. And often, it is the weight of that mantle, not evil, that reveals the fissures and flaws in their Constitution. What a load he bore on his young black shoulders. He never saw 40 years. What a life he lived, what a work he did, what a legacy he left, and what an inspiration he persists to be. Worship him, no. Follow him, we must. And this frail, powerful, flawed hero deserves yet to be followed. I close with these words from his biographer. King addressed beneath the Selma flag, the flag at the state capitol, which once served as the capital of the Confederacy, Beneath the rebel flag King addressed, scarred and weary marchers and said I know what you're asking today How long will it take? I come to say to you this afternoon However difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth pressed to earth will rise again. How long? Not long because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long because you still sow or reap what you sow. How long? Not long because the arm of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. How long? Not long, cause mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpets that shall never call retreat. He is lifting up the hearts of man before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift my soul to answer him, be jubilant my feet. Brothers and sisters, our God is marching on. To God Almighty, we are grateful today for a man named Martin Luther King Jr. And his work is our work. And as we gather on Wednesday as a leadership council and pastors to talk about the vision of this church in a time of unrest and transition when hearts are shaky, minds are unclear. I am grateful as I look to you to know that whatever we build in the weeks, the months, the years going forward a huge piece of that building will be on the foundation where there is a cornerstone named Jesus, and right near and next to it, the cornerstone of a life and example of one named Martin Luther King Jr. To that end, on this holiday weekend, we close our eyes for a moment and we open our hearts and we reflect. We reflect on the call for justice. We reflect on the call to take up crosses. We reflect on ourselves, we reflect on our selfishness, we reflect on our sterility, we reflect on our hope, we reflect on a commission to do more and to do better. We open our hearts to our good God and we offer this church, Grace Point, whose physical foundation may be shifting, but whose spiritual foundation should dig down into the bedrock of the prophet's call for justice and our sweet Christ's call to care for the least of these, even if it cost us our life. To that end, we pray, invoking the name of the one who inspired both Gandhi and King, the name Jesus. May we truly be disciples of the cross-bearing one. And we pray with hope for the day that justice will be settled full and the lion will lay with the lamb. Until that day, may we ever be about the business of God. pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said, a good and hearty. Amen. Amen. Now go and be good to one another.